Hello, everyone, and welcome to Afternoon at the Museum, brought to you by IRA. I'm Janine Stanley, the IRA Explorer Community Manager, and I am joined today by Ryan Bishop, our Supreme YouTube Master. Hi, Ryan. Hello, everyone. Well, Supreme YouTube Master. I want that title now. That's yeah, great. we'll see you <laughs> Today we have use that. our host of the show, Miss Stephanie Watts. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, Janine, Ryan. Hi, everyone. And today we have with us Agent Julia. Hello, Julia. Hello. Hi, Julia. And today we are going to be visiting a much requested museum. And this is going to be a two-parter. We could probably do five shows out of this one museum alone. This is the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It is part of the Smithsonian Institute, which is an IRA access partner. They've been an access partner for a while now. And this particular museum in the Smithsonian has just reopened. So if you go to their website, you're going to see a lot of information about the reopening, but we're excited to bring you this look at this particular museum. But even before we get into that, Stephanie has a hat today, and she has a reason for wearing this hat. So I'm going to turn it over to Stephanie and Julia to describe your hat, first of all, and then take us on a tour of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. All right. All right. Hey, Stephanie. Hi. Can you see it okay, or do okay, I need so to? Uh, I can see the brim of your hat, but I cannot okay. see the actual hat yet. Okay, so now I see it. I see that it says New Orleans, and it says established 1718, and then it says French Quarter underneath that. So that must have come from downtown New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I uh, a friend that gave it to me said that somewhere on here it says birthplace of jazz. So I think there's some stuff on the bill. Yeah, it says birthplace of jazz on the bill. Yeah. In white embroidered letters. Yeah. 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 It's one of my favorites. And I'm typically not a hat wearing person, but when I wear one, I, I, I like this one. And uh, part of the reason I did choose it is because we'll touch on so many things in this museum, but in particular, we're touching on sports and music today. Um, we could certainly touch on all kinds of other things, but in the interest of time and giving you some um, content um, that will help you to um, see the um, civil rights aspects of our history in a different light, um, we're, we've chosen to touch on sports and music. <clears throat> Excuse me. So with that said, um, Julia, I will ask you, where am I in the museum front door, walkway. Um, in fact, I, because I've never been to this museum before, can you share with everyone what it looks like from the outside? I mean, do we have any 360 views or anything? I have a front view. Okay. Of It looks like the front entrance and the little plaza in front of the museum itself. Mm -hmm. uh, this museum is located at 1400 Constitution Ave in Northwest DC, and it is a three-story building. The bottom floor is surrounded by glass doors and panels all the way around. Mm. And then the three floors are each shaped. If you imagined sort of a wicker basket and three baskets that can nest inside each other and stack, okay. it looks a little bit like that. The sides of each floor taper out and then the one above tapers out 
in a mm-hmm. slightly smaller size. So it looks like a stacked heap of little baskets. And the lattice work on the outside is, looks like it's made of some sort of like bronze or copper colored metal. And it's very mm-hmm. ornate and detailed. So it looks almost like the building is woven of metal. Wow, that's beautiful. It and a I big grassy lawn. Mm, go ahead. Yeah, I think it opened in just as President Obama was ending his um, his uh, second term in 2016. Is that? I'm just trying to recall when this one opened. Let me see. I don't actually see anything about that detail on their homepage here. It says there is an about section. It says the National Museum of African-American History and Culture is a place where all Americans can learn about the richness and diversity of the African-American experience, what it means to their lives, and how it helped us shape this nation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, very good. Shall we, uh, shall we go inside? Absolutely. So there's a few different ways we could start here. There is an explore section where you can look at what they call collection stories. And there's a whole list of different stories here, some of which will fall into the sports and music sort of categories of African-American history. Um, do you want me to give you sort of a roundup of some of those things you, sure. or I see and you can tell me where you'd like to start? Yeah. Okay, so I see something about Carl Lewis. I see something about Muhammad Ali. There's a collection story called A Life Well Sung, which is, I'm not actually sure who it is just on site, but it's a young black woman. It looks like in the probably 50s or even earlier, perhaps, standing at a microphone. There's a story that's called Harmonious Mixes, which looks like it's about a band. And then... I know you want to do that one next time. So that's what I'm seeing just on this collections page. Okay. That is sports and music relevant. Okay. And so just I, start at the top or? Well, yes, yes. And, and I would say, as I've perhaps shared, if some of the viewers today or listeners have been with us in the past, I would share again that um, this is the beauty of being um, able to explore museums virtually or in person, if you're you know, able to do that, and or when we're able to do that, that um, using the IRA agent to literally look around, um, explore the information so that you can pick where you want to start. Um, it's so much more enjoyable, frankly, to be able to walk into the museums and say, hey, what's, what's here? What's there? just as Julia pointed out, the collections page and um, knowing interest in starting in a particular area, um, you can certainly use your time however you want to use it. But again, this is one of the great advantages of walking through the museum with an IRA agent. So thank you very much. Um, How about we start with um, Muhammad Ali? Okay, sounds great. Let me pull him up. The story starts with a photograph of Muhammad Ali standing above an opponent in a ring. It's a black and white photograph, and he has his arms raised and his boxing gloves above his head, and his opponent is on his hands and knees, and the referee season seems to be um, declaring him the winner of the fight, and there's a packed crowd behind him, all in suits and ties. (laughs) It says, float like a butterfly in memory of Muhammad Ali from 1942 to 2016 was his lifespan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then below that, there is 
a photograph of a robe. It looks like a white terry cloth robe, very simple bathroom style robe. And it says his name, Muhammad Ali, in big black letters on the back. And the caption here says, this robe and headgear worn by Muhammad Ali while training at the Fifth Street Gym in Miami, Florida, exemplifies his unwavering dedication to being the greatest. Ali's conversion to Islam occurred during his training time in Miami in the 1960s. It was during this period that he shed his birth name, Cassius Clay, and adopted the name Muhammad Ali. This terry cloth robe with Ali's name sewn on the black in large black letters, both reveals and conceals the fighter's identity and prowess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say growing up, um, one of my earliest memories was of him in, I think it was 1968 winning the Olympics, um, boxing title in the 68 Olympics, if I'm not mistaken, that's when that was. Mm -hmm. And just having him as a hero in, you know, in our home, um, being able to identify with someone that was on that big stage of life Mm -hmm. as a young child was was extremely, um, I think, gratifying in some very turbulent times. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. He's a legend. So we've got the robe and uh, other things? Yeah, it goes on to continue in this caption here. It says, while at the pinnacle of his career, Ali was drafted into the military but refused to report for duty because of his consciousness as a Muslim minister and his own personal convictions. Ali was a person who practiced at not being at being great, not only while wearing training gear, but also while striving for greatness and living a life dedicated to making his world better. Outspoken and often criticized for what many saw as divisive language, Ali remained true to his principles throughout his life. His legacy continues to inspire everyone from athletes to school children to find their own greatness. His training headgear is a reminder that being great at something doesn't come without practice, perseverance, and willpower. And here there is a photograph of their exhibit of his boxing headgear. And Mm -hmm. it is a leather Everlast headgear. Uh, you can see that it has scratches and scuffs on it from practicing and fighting and the Everlast uh, label that's sewn onto the center of the forehead part is even busted down the seam. So between the R and the L of Everlast, that label is falling apart. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, you know, leather headgear with big round circle parts that go over the like, temple and ear area to protect the sides of his head. So the face is exposed then, the, the eyes, nose, mouth. Yeah, it looks like the they... mask comes down sort of into the under eye area, the, where your cheekbones would be. But mm-hmm. other than that, yeah, the whole bottom half of his face and his face rather and his eyes would have been exposed. Okay, okay. I never knew that. I never knew that's what the headgear looked like. And I can actually see on this, there's a handwritten inscription that somebody wrote. It looks like it says... It doesn't look like it says Muhammad. It says something Ali, 1973. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the first word is, but so he had actually written his name on it way back then, it looks like. And then at the bottom of this page is a quote from Muhammad Ali. It says, I'm always going to be one black guy who got big on your white televisions and 100% stayed with representing my people. That was my purpose. And I'm showing the world that you can be here and still free and stay yourself and get respect from the world. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's a fitting quote for the yeah. times. Very fitting. So that's the end of that page. But at the bottom of the page, there's a big red banner that says, discover objects relating to Muhammad Ali in the collection. You want me to keep pursuing this topic? Okay, let's see what else we have here. All right, it's thinking. Oh, cool. So there's a whole lot of things. Um, The first is, it says, Black Muslim leader Malcolm X 
photographing Cassius Clay. And it's a photograph by Bob Gomel, who was an American born in 1933. Uh, the photograph itself is from 1964. It's a silver and photographic gelatin on photographic paper. And it looks like it's about 17 by 22 inches, this photo. And then you can click through to view it. So let me get it pulled up larger if possible. Hmm. It doesn't want it to be larger. It wants it to be smaller. Let me back up. So I'm imagining if we were actually inside the museum in this particular collection exhibit, that these would be articles in the exhibit area. Does that sound? Yeah, I'm not sure if this is a current exhibit because it came from the section that's called uh, collection stories, which is okay. sort of, they take items from their huge, huge collection at the Smithsonian, of course, and then tell brief stories about the objects themselves. But at some point, this would have been an exhibit hanging on the wall mm -hmm. that you could look at. Right. So we would be walking through and seeing these collections at some point. Right. Exactly. Which yeah. is the beauty of virtual. <laughs> yeah. There's so much on the Smithsonian page. It's you could do it for days because it's just mm -hmm. everything that they've dig digitally cataloged. So actually, really, you can see more online from the Smithsonian than you can see in person, which is cool. Mm -hmm. So the photograph is you can see. Uh, Muhammad Ali, who I guess was still Cassius Clay at the time in 1964, sitting at a counter. It looks mm -hmm. like a diner counter. And he has another African-American man in glasses sitting beside him smiling and a crowd of men around him and they're all wearing suits. And uh, Ali himself is wearing a black suit with a black bow tie and sitting at the counter smiling at Malcolm X who's standing behind the counter with a camera up to his face photographing Muhammad Ali. The next one in this collection or in this topic is something that says Black Steel, Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali, which is a book um, by Gwendolyn Brooks, who is an American who lived 1917 to 2000. It was published by Broadside Press <coughs> in 1971. And so this one, it actually does say it's on view currently. Okay in community on the third floor. So some of these things are currently on view. Mm -hmm. It's a yellow book with black print on it. It says black steel. And then it looks like it has some information about Jeff Frazier and Muhammad Ali. I'm trying to mm -hmm. figure out if any of these let you view them larger. I'd really like to be able to get into the detail of having difficulty with it. Let's just move on from this book. It says, um, the next one says, Chaining Boxing Gloves, used and signed by Cassius Clay. This is from 1960. Okay. Mm -hmm. And currently on view in community on the third floor as well. And this is a yeah. pair of red leather boxing gloves that look like they have been put through a lot. They are all covered <laughs> in wrinkles and black scuffs and the laces are frayed at the ends and yellowed. I imagine they probably started out as white and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you what color they were because, again, you know, as a kid growing up and, and watching the boxing matches or having them um, on TV in our home as years went by, I never knew what color any of these things were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are sort of a maroon, magenta color red with white trim and white laces that have been yellowed over fighting yeah. and time, I would imagine. Yeah. It looks like they also have in their collection a letter from Muhammad Ali to Khalilo Camacho Ali, or Khalila Camacho Ali. Okay. And that might be it. This, this says, it's his then wife. It's from oh, 1968. 
It says a letter, this is a letter written by Muhammad Ali to his wife, Khalila Kamacho Ali. The letter is two pages in length and is written in cursive in blue ink on two sheets of partially torn, unlined white paper. The first page describes a night in Louisville, Kentucky, where he encountered a man selling the newspaper of the Nation of, um, Nation of Islam, Muhammad Speaks. He noted that it was the first time he had heard of the paper. The second page continues from page one and goes on to say that the newspaper seller invited him to a meeting, and though he did not intend to go to the meeting, he did purchase a copy of Muhammad Speaks. The rest of page two describes a cartoon in the paper that depicted an enslaved person being punished for praying in Arabic and a white slave owner insisting that the enslaved person prays to Jesus. The back of both pages are blank. So that must be when he was introduced to Nation of Islam. Yeah. In yeah. 1968. Mm -hmm. Here's another photo um, from a fight that says Ali versus Terrell. Terrell perhaps at the Astrodome in 1967 and it's a photograph of the weigh-in and Muhammad Ali is standing on the scale and the, the boxing executives are standing around him and he's wearing his white boxing shorts and they're all in their suits mm -hmm. and it looks like there's quite a bit of fanfare around it people with cameras and people in the crowd waiting for him mm -hmm. to weigh in for this fight okay. and then there's a photograph from that fight itself it's rather stunning photograph. The background is entirely black and it's just Ali and Terrell's form standing out in the foreground. And you can see the light glinting off of uh, Terrell's back as he's ducking a punch from Ali that's connecting with the right side of his face. And Ali is <sighs> just in full stride hitting him and standing and just looking very powerful and strong. And he has a very determined look on his face. Wow, wow. That is yeah. from 1967. Very moving. Mm -hmm. The photographer is Walter Luce. Okay. And are there yeah. several more artifacts in this area? There are several more photographs of Ali at fights and many of him training um, on the speed bag. A series of him hitting the speed bag. It's a photograph from the front from behind the bag. So you're just getting the action shots of Ali's fist going and you can see the bag in the foreground of the photograph up in the corner. Mm -hmm. It looks like mostly what's left in this topic is photographs of him fighting. Okay. So um, maybe we can move along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can go back to the collections. Okay. All right, let's see. Now, I do have a question, though, mm -hmm. and I don't know if this would be in the collections as you've seen them there or somewhere else okay. um, okay. inside um, to, related to sports. Um I'm interested to know, um, kind of thinking about some of the things that have happened recently where there's uh, been a, um, I don't, I don't want to say an event because I think I've probably misstated, but, but let's just say an event recently where there were protests uh, by mm -hmm. athletes. And um, I think what I'm knowing, recalling it at, is at, well, let me start that over again. I think what I'm trying to recall is something conceptually athletes for social justice, mm -hmm. or for, I'm sorry, for social change. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's, the, it, it's the, the day when several of them didn't play um, the WNBA, the Women's um, National uh, Basketball Association, didn't play games. Mm -hmm. Baseball teams didn't play. So I'm wondering if there's something in the museum um, that kind of addresses that, if that rambling made any sense. I think that I may have seen something in the exhibitions page about that. 
Mm-hmm. Let me go back and see where I saw it. <laughs> and that's fine. The, the uh, thought I have too is athletes are speaking out. Yes. And they're using their platforms, which I'm very pleased to see, um, to promote social change, social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, the way Colin Kaepernick attempted to do so years ago, well, he did it, and um, mm-hmm. in NFL um, banished him, and that that's how that happened. But today, I'm noticing more and more of the athletes, women and men, mm-hmm. cross tennis, um, basketball, and uh, other sports are standing up, speaking out, and individuals who are allies with us in um, Black Lives Matter and other um, aspects of our um, experience are saying, you know, we, we want to use our voice to um, shed light on a situation that needs change. And so that's what got me thinking when we were reading about Muhammad Ali and his accomplishments. He was certainly a change agent. I mean, he changed a lot of things, uh, certainly post Jackie Robinson in baseball. Mm-hmm. But he, he made significant changes and um, forever changed, in my opinion, the sport of boxing and how we're looked at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right now at this museum, they have an exhibit that's called mm-hmm. Sports Leveling the Playing Field, which I think is exactly what you're looking for. Oh, okay. Well, let's so see. let's see what they have online. Sometimes for the current exhibitions, it's more of like a description of mm-hmm. what's going on there rather than as many of the actual artifacts. But I will tell you everything I can find here. So it says sports leveling the playing field. And in the background is a photograph of a sculpture of the Olympic podium when um, their names are not going to come to me. So I'm just going to read on, but when they raise their fists. Oh yeah. And so the description of this exhibit says sports leveling the playing field explores the contributions of athletes both on and off the field. Some athletes have been symbolic figures of black ability, while others have taken their activism beyond the court to the courtroom, boardroom, and the newsroom. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then there is a video here, which we're probably not going to do for this series, but it says it's the Curator Chat series, the significance of African-Americans in sports with Damien L. Thomas, THD. So that would probably be something that would be cool for people to come back and visit if you're interested. Yes. And the caption begins here, because sports were among the first and most high profile spaces to accept African-Americans on relative terms of equality, sport has had a unique role within American culture. Within black communities, sports have always been political, from the refusal to allow African-Americans an opportunity to compete to the formation of African-American segregated sporting teams and leagues, from the hard-won battles to compete at the highest levels of the game, to the introduction of African-American expressive cultural practices within the games. The African-American presence in sports has had social and political consequences. Yes. And the very first artifact here is a book from 1939 that says The Negro in Sports by Edwin Bancroft Henderson. Mm-hmm. And it's an old weathered yellow book. And on the cover is, it looks like cut out photographs, like literally took photographs and cut out around the people of different um, African-American people playing different sports. There's a football quarterback and someone jumping over a hurdle, but it's just the shape of the man hurdling the hurdle itself isn't mm-hmm. there. A runner and a boxer and someone playing, it looks like handball and diving. Okay. So it's an old book about sports. And then there's a section that says journey through the exhibition. And this part of the exhibition is African-Americans at the Olympic Games. And there's a start exploring button. 
So I clicked through that, and the very first slide says 1896 in Athens, Greece. The 1896 Summer Olympics, officially known as the game, Games of the First Olympiad, was the first international Olympic Games held in modern history. Organized by the International Olympic Committee, which had been created by Pierre de Coubertin, it was held in Athens, Greece from 6 to 15 April of 1896. Fourteen nations and 241 athletes, all males, took place in the Games. Participants were all European or living in Europe, with the exception of the U.S. team. 1904, the Olympics in St. Louis, Missouri. The 1904 Summer Olympics, officially known as the Game of the Third Olympiad, was celebrated in St. Louis, Missouri, United States, from August 29th until September 3rd, 1904, as part of an extended sports program lasting from July 1st to November 23rd, 1904. Located what is now Francis Field on the campus of Washington University in St. Louis, it was the first time that the Olympic Games were held outside Europe. In 1904, hurdler George Coleman Page became the first African-American to win an Olympic medal. Since then, success at the Games has been a symbol of achievement that transcended the sports world for African-Americans. Very good. In 1936, the Berlin-Germany Games... The 1936 Summer Olympics, officially known as the Games of the 11th Olympiad, was held in 36 in Berlin, Germany. Nazi leader Adolf Hitler attempted to use the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin, Germany, to support his notion of Aryan racial supremacy. The 18 African-American athletes from the United States, including Jesse Owens, helped undermine Hitler's claims. Jesse Owens, who lived 1912 to 1980, won four gold medals in track and field in historic performance at the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. After the Olympics, Owens refused to take part in a tour organized by the U.S. Olympic Committee and was barred from competition. High-paying endorsement deals were rare for African-American athletes at the time, and Owens struggled to make a living. Still, for most of his life, he extolled the virtue of sports as a path towards social change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In 1948, in London Olympics, that was the Games of the 14th Olympiad from the 29th of July till the 14th of August in 48. At the 1948 Olympics, high jumper Alice Coachman became the first African-American woman to win a gold medal. Sprinter Harrison Dillard won the 100-meter dash at the London Games. These two medalists and those that followed demonstrated both athletic achievement and the hope that each victory would bring the African-American community closer to equality and racial justice. And this is the first one where there's a photograph, and it is a photograph of Alice Coachman in Wembley Stadium setting a new record in the high jump. She crossed the bar at 1.68 meters, and in the photo, it's taken from the side, and you can see the top of her head, and her arms are thrown open wide, and her knees are tucked up towards her body as she's clearing the pole for mm -hmm. the high jump. Mm -hmm. And again, what year was that? That was 1948. 48, wow. Yeah. Uh, the next one was 1952 in Helsinki, Finland, mm -hmm. from July 19th to August 3rd, 1952. Harrison Dillard once again competed at the 52 Olympics in Helsinki, where he became the only man to win gold medals in sprinting and hurdling events. He won the 100-meter dash in London in 1948 and 110 meters in Helsinki. And I will just jump in and, and mm -hmm. add kind of alongside the Olympic accomplishments in 48 and 52, you had Jackie Robinson being the first African-American um, in the uh, baseball, National mm -hmm. Baseball League. Um, so all of these things were happening concurrently and um, um, people being um, able to speak out on social issues, um, you know, as a voice that so many of the people at that time didn't have. And it was, I think, a um, good sign to 
have people, um, you know, available to speak because the other choice people could have made is, well, I'm an athlete, they sign it, make the money. Although it wasn't a lot of money by compared to today's standards, they they took a lot of risk and their risks had significant consequences for them. Probably, I mean, all risks, all all the risks we take do have consequences, but you know, we were still in a point where the Jim Crow South uh, law, the Jim Crow laws were still strongly in effect. And these people just could risk their lives and be killed. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's see. We are in 1956 now in Melbourne, Australia. I'm going to start just giving the highlights because I don't want us to run out of all our time on the Olympics. (laughs) This one says, the women's four by 100 meter relay team won a bronze medal at these Olympics. The team comprised of Isabel Daniels, May Fags, Margaret Matthews, and Wilma Rudolph, all attended Tennessee State University. The Tiger Bells is the TSU track team we known sent many representatives to the Olympics over the years. And then we're going back up to Italy here in 1960. Wilma Rudolph won three gold medals and was proclaimed the fastest woman in the world. And boxer Cassius Clay, later known as Muhammad Ali, won a gold medal in boxing. Feature United States flag bearer Raffer Johnson won a gold medal in the decathlon. 1968 in Mexico City, Bob Beeman became the first man to surpass 29 feet in the long jump. Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Australian Peter Norman staged one of the most iconic and important protests against racial discrimination. Shoeless, dressed in black stockings, each with a black glove on one hand, the Olympic medalist stretched the two black gloves high into the sky to symbolize power and unity. Smith wore a scarf that signified blackness, and the black socks stressed the poverty plaguing black Americans. Their bowed heads represented their prayers for black Americans. So that was this one in 68 Mexican City was that protest. Um, Mm -hmm. Boxer George Foreman waved an American flag in the ring after his victory. One week earlier, Tommy Smith and John Carlos were banned from the Olympic Village for their protest on the medal podium. Foreman's Mm -hmm. patriotic gesture was widely interpreted as as a rejection of the Black Power activism. Lee Evans, Larry James, and Ron Freeman, uh, the American medalists in the 400-meter race at the 68 Olympics, were Black Berets and raised fists to symbolize Black Power. That was a very eventful year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 1976 in Montreal, 29 countries, mostly African, boycotted the Montreal Games when the International Olympic Committee refused to ban New Zealand after New Zealand's National Rugby Union team had toured South Africa earlier in 1976 in defiance of the United Nations calls for a sporting embargo. Dr. Nikki Frankie competed as a member of the U.S. fencing team, and 20-year-old Morehouse College student Edwin Moses set a new world record in the 400-meter hurdles. In 1984 in Los Angeles, California, the 1984 games were boycotted by a total of 14 Eastern Bloc countries, including the Soviet Union and East Germany, in response to the American-led boycott of the previous 1980 Summer Olympics. Uh, Carl Lewis made his first of four appearances at the Olympics, equaled the 1936 performance of Jesse Owens by winning four gold medals. Future Dream Team members Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing were on the team that won the gold. Uh, Jackie Joyner-Kersey uh, earned a silver medal in the Heptathlon, a seven-event competition that includes the 200-meter run, 800-meter run, and 11-meter mm-hmm. or 100-meter hurdles, rather. And her brother Al also won the gold medal in the triple jump. Right. 1988 in Seoul, South Korea, uh, U.S. sprinter Florence Griffith Joyner set an Olympic record in the 100-meter dash, and Roy Jones Jr. in boxing 
dominated his opponents, never losing a single round en route to the final. In the final, he controversially lost a 3-2 decision to South Korean fighter Park Si-hun, despite pummeling Park for three rounds mm-hmm. and landing 86 punches to Park's 32. Ooh, that's, wow. that's a lot of punches. <laughs> 1988, Calgary, Canada. Uh, Seba Johnson was the first black woman to compete in alpine skiing in the Winter Olympics, and Debbie Thomas won a bronze medal in women's figure skating to become the first African-American to win a medal in the Winter Olympics. I remember that. Mm-hmm. When I wanted to be a skater, but that was <laughs> a short-lived desire because <laughs> I don't like ice. <laughs> Cold. I have a memory of my mom giving me a Jackie Joyner Kersey Barbie one year for Christmas when I was really little. That's <laughs> cool. Yeah, my mom's cool. <laughs> in 1992 in Barcelona, Spain, uh, in basketball, the admittance of NBA players led to the formation of the Dream Team of the United States, featuring Michael, featuring Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and other NBA stars. Prior to 92, only European and South American professionals were allowed. Mm-hmm. In 1996, Atlanta, Georgia, I'm sure we all remember that one. Muhammad Ali lit the Olympic flame. That was beautiful. Yeah, the first one, to, the first African American to do so after Rafford Johnson. So he was the second total and the first one since Rafford Johnson. Both men saw their athletic achievements and ensuing fame as a way to improve race relations. Johnson and integrationists sought ways to build alliances with white Americans and Ali, the 1960s era separatist, opposed integration and offered forceful critiques of the nation's racism and interventionist foreign policy. African-American communities have debated these two traditions of activism for more than a century. And this is the beginning of Michael Johnson here. Spencer Michael Johnson celebrated his world record-breaking victory in the 200-meter dash, and he also won the 400-meter dash, becoming the first man to ever win both. Mm-hmm. 2002, Salt Lake City. Vanetta Flowers and Jill Backen won the gold medal. The success of Flo Hyman in volleyball, Dominique Dawes in gymnastics, Debbie Thomas in figure skating, and Vanetta Flowers in bobsledding demonstrated the diversity of African-American women's engagement with elite sports. In 2012 in London, Gabby Douglas became the first African-American to win the gold medal in one of the most high-profile events, the Women's Individual All-Around Gymnastics Competition. Yes, I remember that. I remember that as well. And that's it for the Olympic mm-hmm. part of this exhibit here. I will share with you um, that I learned an interesting little factoid, and maybe you can research um, by this particular uh baseball player his name is kurt floyd i'm sorry let me say that again kurt flood and he played for the st louis cardinals like k-u-r-t he's actually c-u-r-t flood if they have anything about him at the smithsonian here Mm -hmm. they have his jersey yeah there's the jersey and there's a story about him that i didn't remember I, I don't think I ever knew it. I won't even say I didn't remember it. I didn't know it. But he had a hand in um, ushering in what I think sports knows as free agency in baseball. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, if you could describe the jersey, though, I'd like to. Yeah, it looks like this is the one artifact that they have of his at the Smithsonian. I'm going to be happy to um, mm-hmm. look up more information about him if you'd like as well. Um but it's a Cardinals jersey, and he wore number 21. So it's a short-sleeved white jersey. And it says, this baseball jersey was game-worn by Kurt Flood in 1966, playing for the St. Louis Cardinals. The jersey is a short-sleeved and collarless. It is made from white synthetic fabric and closes down the center front using seven pearlized white plastic buttons. 
The word Cardinals is embroidered in red rayon thread across the front of the chest with a gold baseball bat. Above it, two Cardinals sitting perched on the bat. So there's a yellow bat going diagonally across the jersey above the word mm -hmm. Cardinals with two Cardinals sitting on it facing one another. And the number 21 in red and blue felt is sewn at the proper right side below the embroidery. A red Rollins manufacturer's label is sewn on the proper left side. And red and blue felt letters and numbers are sewn on the back of the jersey on, across the shoulder saying flood and 21. Right. And it, it is not lined. So this is from 1966, it said. Okay. And yeah, he, he lived 38 to 97. Yeah. It, apparently he... Um, opted not to be traded. So when he got, he was told he was traded, as I understand the story, to know. But back then, um, baseball pretty much owned the players. And if they traded you, you were to go. So there's uh, what he did in a, objecting to the trade, I think led to what, again, what we know as the modern day um, free agency in baseball. But his advocacy there led to him being ousted. He was out. And so yeah. again, we have history of people protesting and sacrificing um, sport they love, uh, playing, way to make money. But he stood He stood up for, for that and said, no, I won't be traded. So anyway, I thought I'd check to see if there was something at the museum that kind of alluded to that story. Yeah, I think that it must have that would be the story that was in the exhibit. I don't really see anything on the Smithsonian site about the story itself, although they have the jersey. I did find an Atlantic article called um, How Kurt Flood Changed Baseball and Killed His Career in the Process. About, yeah. I, you summarized it really well. That was kind of yeah. scamming I was, yeah. the article. So you've got right, the story, no, I was right? Say it. Yeah, I don't, we're probably in the interest of time, I don't want to read yeah. it. But I think that, I just thought that was amazing because there's so many of these athletes who, um, they just make sacrifices. Again, I allude uh, to Colin Kaepernick, and I don't know mm -hmm. if he has anything on him, but he's lost his career. He's not been welcomed back into the NFL. And now I can't recall how many years ago it was that he simply kneeled to protest police brutality. So, I think I can tell you because I searched his name on the Smithsonian site here and there is a signed digital print of Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the National Anthem on September 1st, 2016 here mm -hmm. that they have on exhibit or they have at some point had on exhibit and then there's a signed Time magazine from October of 2016 that has him on the front and that title of that time was The Perilous Fight. They have a 49ers jersey of Kaepernick's from 2014. Mm -hmm. And they have his cleats from 2014 as well. So it looks like fall. So the beginning of the season in 2016 would have been when he knelt. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very good. Well, what I would like to do as our time is uh, rolling along. Yeah, it's flying by. <laughs> yeah, it is flying by. I mean, there's just so much to cover. I would encourage anyone out there to take advantage of the IRA promotion um, to tour the museum because there's no way we could cover all of this. You could do this Even for 12 with, hours. Yeah, easily. easily. You could just get sidetracked and um, read more than is actually on display in the exhibit. Um, if you wouldn't mind moving us into some of the music exhibits, then we can um, maybe start that and 
time, um, which is two weeks from today, we'll pick up with some more of the music. All right, I'm going to give you three choices. Okay. <laughs> the first one says, the woman with the violin, and the quote on it says, Ginger and her violin. There's one that says, a life well sung, which looks like it's about an individual woman, and there's one called Harmonious Mixes that the photograph looks like a big band. Okay, okay. I'm going to go with the violin because okay. I never knew we were involved in that. <laughs> I have never heard of this woman either. Um, it's a photograph of a young black woman in a big, beautiful yellow ball gown, and she's seated on the floor, and the gown is pulled around her, and she's holding a violin and smiling. And mm. the title of this section is The Woman with the Violin, Ginger Smock and the Last Angeles Jazz Scene. Mm. Violinist Ginger Smock was a critical figure in the development of the Los Angeles jazz scene and a trailblazing leader for female musicians in the male-dominated music industry of the 1940s and 1950s. Her work helped to pave the way for future jazz violinists like India Cook and Regina Carter. And the photograph that I described is from 1954. Mm -hmm. It says, jazz violinist Emma Ginger Smock was born in Chicago in 1920. After her parents' untimely deaths left her orphaned at age six, Smock moved to Los Angeles where she was raised by her aunt and uncle. She soon displayed precocious musical talent. Realizing their adopted daughter was a prodigy, Smock's aunt and uncle bought her a violin and arranged for her to receive private music lessons. Within a few years, little Emma Smock could be seen performing around Los Angeles as a solo violinist. At age 10, she played the Hollywood Bowl and gave her first solo recital at Los Angeles' first AME church the following year. As a teenager, Smock played violin in prominent musical organizations, including the All-City Student Symphony and the Los Angeles Junior Philharmonic, of which she was the only African-American member. Mm -hmm. Smock spent the early 1940s performing light concert music before becoming a protege of veteran jazz violinist Stuff Smith in 1943. Smock had already begun experimenting with improvisation and was an admirer of jazz violinists like Stefan Grappelli and Joe Venuti. It was Smith, however, who launched her career when he arranged for her first professional job as a jazz musician. By the time she was 23, Smock was playing jazz around Southern California with an all-female trio called the Sepia Tones, and she would go on to become a prominent figure in the Los Angeles jazz scene in the years following World War II. Mm. They have on display here a violin owned by Ginger Smock from, it was built in 1849 by Ferdinand August Tomoka, mm -hmm. and it is a dark brown wood violin. Mm -hmm. um, it looks to be in very good condition still. I don't really see any damage or anything like that. And it's got a nice shine to it. And then there's a bow accompanying it as well. Mm -hmm. And how many strings do they have? Violins have four strings okay. and they attach at the top to pegs like a guitar would where you mm -hmm. can tighten or loosen them to tune. And then the four strings go down the neck and over a bridge and then uh, connect at the bottom. And there's a chin rest on the bottom part as well, a plastic chin rest. Okay. Or it's probably wooden on this one because it's from 1849. <laughs> hey, right. <laughs> exactly. And here's a little bit of information about LA's black jazz scene. It says on Central Avenue where Spock often played, it had an important influence on jazz history. Jazz had arrived in Los Angeles by 1908 when New Orleans bassist Bill Johnson led a band in Central Avenue Bar. The city's fledgling jazz community continued to grow as more black musicians from New Orleans arrived during and after World War I when many black musicians joined the first wave of the Great Migration. 
Influential pianist and composer Ferdinand Jelly Roll Morton was the most famous New Orleans transplant to work on Central Avenue in these early years. By the 1930s, Central Avenue was the center of a booming Black music scene that attracted iconic performers like Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, and Nat King Cole. Drawing the attention of jazz fans nationwide, celebrated local musicians included alto saxophonist Marshall Will, trombonist Britt Woodman, and percussionist Lionel Hampton were figures of the Avenue's busy nightlife during the 30s and 40s, helped establish Los Angeles' reputation as an important incubator of jazz talent, Central Avenue's influence on the national jazz landscape continued into the post-war decades. Many of the younger generations of Black Los Angeles musicians, like bassist Charles Mingus, tenor saxophonist Dexter Gordon, and pianist Hampton Hawes became key contributors to the development of bebop during the 40s and 50s. The informal center of the Black music scene was Musicians Union, local six or local 767, where Black musicians rehearsed and congregated. With 330 members, it was the second largest Black chapter of the American Federation of Musicians, surpassed only by the Chicago chapter. Wow, okay. There are three photographs here mm-hmm. of the Los Angeles jazz scene. The first is Sarah Vaughn, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, and David Howard at the Club Oasis in Los Angeles in the 1950s. And so <laughs> this is an amazing photo. It's Sarah Vaughn is wearing a long, dark, it looks like mink coat, some kind of fur coat, and wearing a long evening ball gown. And she's crossing her hands and she has her pocketbook in her hands on her lap and her hair is all done up in pin curls. And she has this huge smile on her face. And then Lee Armstrong is sitting beside her and also just gritting in his suit and tie. And then beside her, Billie Holiday is also wearing a big old, more lightly colored fur coat with just ribs of fur going all down her body and a hat with feathers coming off of it. And then David Howard is the only one who's not looking at the camera. He looks like he's trying to pretend he's not being photographed. He has his hands <laughs> crossed over his knees. And it just looks like this amazing night out at a jazz club, you know, with all these legends yeah. just sitting around together. Yeah. <laughs> and the next photo is... Um, Dexter Gordon, it's from 1977, and it's a photograph of Dexter Gordon playing, it looks like a tenor sax, a medium-sized sax Mm -hmm. into a microphone on stage, and Mm -hmm. you can tell he's just blowing his heart out from the look on his face. And can you describe the saxophone? Yeah, absolutely. So it has a mouthpiece that comes out straight out from his lips, and then a few inches away from his face, it curves down and goes all the way down to about his hip level where it bends back up. And all the way down that section from about chest height to hip height are keys. And he has his right hand down at the bottom by his waist on four keys and his left hand up at the top on four other keys. And you can see his fingers moving in this photograph. And then the saxophone curves back up down at the bottom by his hip and opens up into like a trumpet mouth at the end, (laughs) which is right up against the microphone. So he's blowing it like right into where the sound is being picked up. Right. And is it silver or gold? Um, this one's in black and white. I can't tell for sure. If I had to guess, I would say gold, but mm-hmm. it's definitely some sort of shiny metallic color like that. Yeah. And the keys are the same color as well. It looks like it's all monotone. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking just to go back a moment to the picture of uh, Sarah Vaughn and Billie Holiday sitting at the table there with the, with the guys. Um, Mink coats in Los Angeles, it's, it's kind of a funny, <laughs> funny idea. I don't know but that we ever got that cold. <laughs> they must have been hot, but they were on fashion for the time, for sure. Yes. yes. 
Yeah. Uh, the last photo here is Lionel Hampton on stage, and he is standing in front of some sort of either tom-tom or snare drum, and he has drumsticks in his hand, and he's got his mouth open wide as if I think he's probably yelling into the crowd while he plays mm-hmm. this drum. And mm-hmm. the crowd up front is all uh, young Black people who are dressed the nines, all standing at the stage and leaning over and yelling back at him. <laughs> and it's a really cool action shot. Yeah. There's another video in this section um, called Boogie Woogie Gals that I would be interested to revisit at a later point. It says Ginger's Boogie performed by Ginger's Smock is what is included in that video. So there is some audio of hers on here. Yeah. Um, There's a little bit more about the Los Angeles music scene moving forward here. If you want me to continue or we can try to get one more topic in if you prefer. Well, let's, let's see what we have left. Um, I know again, our time is winding down. All right, let's check out one more. Let's see. There's the big band one. There's the one. Oh, where'd that baby go? Here she is. Okay, so this one is a life well song. It's about Maxine Sullivan, who lived 1911 to 1987. And then there's the one about the big band. I, I would like to hear about the big band. Let's see okay. what's going on with the big band. All right, here they are. Let's see what this one's all about. Cool. Okay, this one's called Harmonious Mixes, and it says African-American jazz meets Latin rhythm. Ah, so it's a good continuation of that last one, I think. Okay, Latin jazz was born, and this one's also available in Spanish if anyone is interested later on. Latin jazz was born of the communal harmonies between African Americans, Latin Americans, and Caribbean musicians. And there's a photo here, uh, it's a photographic print of Tito and Paquito de Rivera inscribed to Dizzy Gillespie in the 1950s. Mm. And it was signed by Tito, it looks like, in 1986. So this is Tito de Rivera is a grown-up man wearing a bow tie and a white jacket and standing with his uh, jazz or his band director stick, it looks like, in his hand. And then Mm -hmm. Tito de Rivera is a very young boy, I would guess six or seven years old. He's also wearing a white suit and wearing a sax, holding a saxophone. So hopefully Mm -hmm. we'll learn about them right here. In this 1950s photo in the collection of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, legendary Latin jazz figure Paquito de Rivera appears as a child next to his father, Tito de Rivera, also a musician. The dedication, We Love You Dizzy, is addressed to jazz master Dizzy Gillespie and captures the strong professional and personal ties between the Cuban saxophonist and the African-American trumpeter. As with this photo, there are a number of materials in the NMAAHC collection that highlight important moments and outstanding figures in the musical collaborations that created Latin jazz. Here's a quote from Piquito that says, So he came, even without liking the music, came with books, bebop books by Dizzy and Charlie Parker and Monk and all that, and more LPs and all that, and we ended up loving that music. <laughs> Drawn toward the promise of economic opportunity or the desire to escape social stigmas in their own countries, Cubans, Mexicans, Haitians, and Puerto Ricans, among other Latin American and Caribbean citizens, took part in a large-scale migration to the United States during the late 19th and early 20th century, particularly to New Orleans. This exodus was responsible for the integration of sounds that gave birth to American jazz and introduced popular Latin rhythms to the U.S. Latin American and Caribbean musicians, not magicians, (laughs) musicians (laughs) felt themselves working in many of the jazz brass bands that flourished in New Orleans and in doing so influenced jazz with a Latin tinge, as composer and pianist Jelly Roll Morton called it. During World War I, the regimental band of the 369th Infantry Regiment, Regiment, my goodness, 369th Infantry Regiment, the Harlem Hellfighters, brought jazz to Europe. 
1917, the same year that the Jones Act transformed all Puerto Ricans into U.S. citizens, the band's director, James Reese Europe, began recruiting musicians from the island. In 1918, Black and White Photograph and NMAAHC's collection depicts the brass band performing at an American Red Cross hospital in Paris, France. Noble mm-hmm. Sissel, an African-American jazz lyricist, vocalist, and composer, was a prominent member of this ensemble. After the war, Sissel hired Puerto Rican musicians for his band, while others worked as sidemen at jazz orchestras. These interactions resulted in musicians sharing their particular regional rhythms with each other and set the stage for the future fusion of jazz and Latin musical styles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. a photograph here of that uh, infantry band practicing outside of, looks like army tents, like temporary tents that they set up with like frames and canvas tents over them with plastic windows and they're seated around the director just in a big semicircle doing an orchestra practice out in the middle of a field. <laughs> well, you know, and, and the fact that they brought jazz over to Europe, it just shows the music mm-hmm. can be universal um, and it can be a way for us to build bridges um, to connect with all of the differences we have. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, that's one of the things I personally love about music is that you can set aside some differences and enjoy something so beautiful, whether it's classical, uh, whether it's violinist, like the previous exhibit, or jazz, or, in t- you know, of course, modern times, um, the music that we listen to today, um, hip hop or um, R&B or, um, or rock or whatever. Um, and in fact, I'm sure the museum probably has some um, exhibit that talks about um, African-American influence in rock and roll music. I I think of Chuck yeah. Berry. <laughs> yeah, I think of Chuck Berry and oh others like that. You Little Richard. Are, you guys are hitting right. right <laughs> oh, oh, the bell hour. has rung. What a, what a great way to go out. I mean, I love the big bands, so I'm I'm all into that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much. So much. <laughs> and and I have to say the the trip through the Olympics. Oh my gosh, that brought back memories. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very cool. <laughs> Just a lot of. A lot of Absolutely. good, good memories, and uh, yeah, it's it's been a blast doing this. I I love um, museums more now than I ever thought I would, um, having had participated. That is awesome to hear. So, Julia, if people were visiting this museum, um, they they would really have a lot to choose from for an agent, right? Oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> we could do this for days and days. There's so much here, and it's all great. Oh, that's that's good to know. And this museum actually kind of has a double um, a double dose of Ira goodness here. They are not only <laughs> one of the uh, AAAM museums, but they are also in the Smithsonian um, Museum Complex. So they are also covered by that promo. Um, the AAAM promo covers them online. And then the on-site, if you happen to be in the D.C. area, um, that is going to be covered by both promos. So, you know, you can get tons of IRA goodness here. They do have a lot of um, COVID precautions in place for the museum. So if you are lucky enough to be in the area and want to take a tour, um, it would be an awesome thing to do. But please read all of the precautions and everything first. It's um, on a very limited basis. Um, and But, you know, they're definitely open and definitely want Wanting to get everybody back in mm-hmm. and uh, looking at some of this amazing material. 
Amazing. And I'm imagining it changes. They're always adding new pieces and moving others to the collections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So our next episode of Afternoon at the Museum will be on October the 23rd. Can you believe that? is flying by and we're going to visit some other aspects of sports and music right Mm -hmm. dabble back into this music and some other sports and um and just mix it up and have a little fun oh absolutely and you know we may even find a few blind people in this whole mix too (laughs) you never know yeah yeah I would love to thank you, Stephanie Watts, for being our host for Afternoon at the Museum. And for all of you who have asked, yes, we are going to continue the show through, you know, the first of the year and onward. And we'll be looking at a number of museums. And we just made the decision that during February, which is Black History Month, we will be on weekly. So get excited. And we have some really cool stuff for you in that month. So thank you so much, Stephanie. And You're thank welcome. you to our world-class agent, Julia, for yeah, the Julia. description. <laughs> Pleasure <job>. as always. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, thanks to Ryan, our YouTube guy. Thanks, Ryan. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Techno Wizardry himself. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would love to thank all of you out there for being with us today, and uh, much appreciated, and we will see you in two weeks afternoon at the museum.